0: excited that you're here. Lots of things happening, lots of great things happening in and around our community. We're so excited and honored that you took the time to join us, whether it's here in the auditorium or whether you're joining us online on Facebook Live. Let me encourage you, even those in the room, if you have a Facebook page and a smartphone in your hand or if you can get it in your hand, take just a moment and share this feed from our page over to your page because every time that's done, it's just amazing how it multiplies the people who will be exposed the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And again, we're always encouraged knowing that we have people in Texas and California and Japan and all over the world who actually join us here. So if you're actually on with us right now on Facebook Live, you can maybe comment where you're listening from, whether it's Alexandria, Tennessee, or Noreen, Tennessee, or Watertown, Tennessee. We're just excited that you're joining us. We'd like to have you here when you can be here, but if you can't, you can always join us on Sunday morning right here on Facebook Live. Hopefully, we're going to multiply that to some other platforms here soon. So again, we're excited that you're joining us. Again, life can be adventurous. Life can be full of joy. One of those joyful things that happens in our community starts this week. It's the Wilson County slash Tennessee State Fair. Let me let me just ask you, didn't we already know it was the Tennessee State Fair? I mean, we already knew that. So anyway, they just came in here and got in on a good thing. Again, it's fun, it's full of adventure, it's full of joy. That's just life. But here's the other side. Life can also be full of pain. Life can be full of suffering and heartbreak. There's disappointment. There are broken relationships. There's crime. There's racism. There's victimization. There's abuse. There's COVID-19. And there's death. Ten years ago, I was sitting in the house that I used to live in at the dinner table, and the phone rang, and I looked, and it was somebody I'm very familiar with, somebody who I usually speak to once or twice every day, and I could tell, again, you see, I get emotional, it was not going to be that normal conversation. The voice on the other end was starting to crack up, kind of like mine is right now, and I knew that, you know what, I didn't need to have that conversation at the dinner table. So I took my phone and I walked out to the front porch. and It it was really a lifelong friend, probably my closest friend. If you talk about who's close to you, it's probably one of my closest friends, if not the closest, because it's the longest friendship that I have that still exists today. And they said, I've got cancer. And I think that was in two thousand and ten, if I remember right. I can remember everything that happened and every conversation, every bit of the conversation. I mean, it was a heavy conversation. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, even though I didn't really have words, I said, Well, let let me let me pray with you. And I did. And you know, it's really weird. Sometimes it's easier to pray with people you don't know than it is with people you do know. But I, I I'm thousands of miles in between me and this individual and I and, and I and I prayed with her. And she went to the doctor, she had the surgery uh, and did the chemo, the, not the chemotherapy, but radiation. And you know, several months later, maybe a year later, she was cancer free, cancer free for 10 years. And then I think it was the first of last year, just before March, I got that same phone call again. And she said, they found another place on her breast and she said they're going to have to take it out or you know however they do that and and probably going to be some radiation and 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 I was like oh you know and I just I you know I don't have words I mean we just don't have words and the plan you know is that it's going to be done like it was done 10 years before and and everything was mapped out and then she tested positive for COVID-19 which pushed it out. And then, as most of you know, hospitals and surgery centers, they just said, you know what, we're not going to do those surgeries unless they're absolutely necessary. And this one wasn't deemed as absolutely necessary. I mean, yes, there was a spot. Yes, there was cancer. Yes, something needed to be done, but it was going to be pushed off and pushed off and pushed off. And my friend found themselves in a crisis where all they could do because of all that was happening in their life and in this country, all they could do was wait and wait and wait and wait. And if you're one of those people who have had a health emergency like that and you don't really know what's going on in your body, then you know it can be one of the most miserable times in your life. You know, I, I, I was thinking about the next several weeks, and I want to start off today by setting the context to, to where we're actually going to be going the next several weeks, because it, it starts with something that many of us have heard most of our lives. It, it's just two words, true or false. I mean, true or false. I mean, most of us are going to remember somebody at Lebanon High School or Friendship Christian School uh, giving us a pop quiz, and you had to answer the the 10 questions or the 20 questions, true or false, true or false. What is it? Is it true or false? But what we're going to do over the next month or so, uh, we're going to start each week by looking at that context, true or false. And then I'm going to tag those two words with a question that's a little more specific. And kind of the question we're going to be look at, looking at today is, is: is true or false? God is there when I go through a crisis. I mean, think about it: true or false? Is that true or is that not true? Is it true or is it false? God is there when I find myself in a crisis. And my friend found herself in a crisis. When she needed surgery and she needed treatment and she couldn't get it. And because of the things that she needed to happen, her life seemed to be going off the rails and not working out. And the question is this, true or false, God was there in that crisis or was he not there in that crisis? That's the question. And like I said each week, we're going to be looking at a question. And we're going to ask a question. So if you're visiting with us today, I'm telling you, you want to be here for the next four weeks. You don't have to come back after that, but come back for the next four weeks, okay? Because we're going to be asking a question, true or false. And today the question is this, true or false, God is there in times of crisis. Now, let me be clear about what some of you are going to be tempted to do because some of you are going to be tempted, whether here in the auditorium or at home or in your office or in your car, you're going to be tempted to take that question right there that you see and run with it. We're not attempting to answer the question of why. That's not what we're asking. We're not asking why is there a crisis. We're not asking why do bad things happen to people or why do bad things happen to good people. Because we've already answered that question. And if you take the time to go to CrossroadsLebanon.com and scroll down to the media page, you can go back and you've seen I've done a series called Questions. We've woven in and out of that series for several years. And what I'll do is I'll just answer a question from Scripture based on something that might be happening in our culture. So we've already answered the question, why does God allow suffering? But today we're asking a different question. Is God there when I find myself in a crisis? Where is God when I find myself in a crisis? Where is God when I'm hurting? Where is God when I'm suffering? That's the question. And really, true or false, is God there or is He not there? Is He aware of what I'm going through or is He not aware of what I'm going through? Now, again, this morning, I want to remind you of something. Always keep track of what's happening here. The basic two places are Instagram and Facebook. Again, we used to send out an email. You guys never read it. I could see that you didn't read it, so we quit doing it. But Facebook and Instagram right now, even though they're the devil incarnate, they are the way that we communicate with you. So if you'll look at our page and like our page, you'll be able to see little suggestions like the suggestion I made this past week, and the suggestion was very simply this: I want you to take the time and stream it because you all have Amazon Prime. You know it's on there and it's available free. If you don't, there are other streaming services that you can get it for like two bucks. It, let me just tell you: if you don't have two bucks, see me after the service. I'll give you two bucks so that you can buy it. Okay? Because I want you to watch it. It's the Passion of the Christ. I think it came out in 2007, but it, it, it's a movie about the last days and the life and the the the. Uh, It's it's the life of Jesus Christ. I'm I'm having a Joe Biden moment here. Okay, so anyway, uh, it's it's about the the the, you know the whole Good Friday, the resurrection, the whole experience. I didn't mean that bad. I'm just kind of you know making fun of myself. But but anyway, uh, I I want you to watch it because here's the thing: many of you are taking times watching Virgin River. I know that because I watch it. I love Jack. (laughs) I love Virgin River. I love Selling Sunset. I mean, I love all those things on Netflix, but you need to watch something that builds up your faith and feeds your soul. Amen? And that's why I want you to watch The Passion of the Christ, because here's the thing. If you'll take the time to watch The Passion of the Christ this week, then what I'm going to do is over the next several weeks, I'm going to take people and scenes and circumstances out of that particular movie, which comes from Scripture, and I'm going to answer questions, true or false. And you will have seen what I'm talking about, not only coming from Scripture, but you will have seen it if you watch it depicted on the screen so it will help you understand the things I'm talking about when you arrive here on Sunday morning. I mean, think about it. It's just going to make the world a world of difference. And if this past week you did what I asked you to, which is to watch The Passion of the Christ, go back and watch it, then you may have been moved by a very particular scene. It's the scene that is full of pain and hurt where you see the mother of Jesus, the earthly mother of Jesus, Mary. You look at the pain and the hurt that she experienced at the foot of the cross. Just think about it. I mean, it's hard to imagine watching your child in unbelievable agony. And it's agony that we read about. We don't just see it on the screen, but we read it in the scripture. And then we see it actually acted out or displayed on the movie screen. So let's look at John chapter 19 together. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. I encourage you to bring it so you can make notes. But if you don't have it, it's perfectly fine. But John chapter 19, starting at verse 25, here's what it says. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he said, Here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Even as Mary kneels at the foot of the cross, even as she is filled with pain and hurt, it was such a painful event that Jesus cries out and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now now, now think about that. Jesus, in the pain and the agony that is happening to him as he is nailed to the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Mary, who is there, the mother of Jesus, who is there on her knees at the foot of the cross, you have to wonder, did she not echo the very same thing? Yes, God, where are you? Where are you in all of this? Haven't you asked that question in the last 16 months or so? Lockdowns, shutdowns, vaccines, vaccines, masks, no masks, no vaccine, political right, political left. Haven't you asked the question? God, where are you in all of this? Again, it's probably something most of us have been asking when there's so much uncertainty that we've been through and still so much certain uncertainty in front of us. Now, here's the thing. As, as you and I watch this movie, The Passion of the Christ, and read the Gospels, you know what we have the luxury of? We have the luxury of, like we do on Netflix, you can, you can, you can fast forward. You can go back. You can fast forward. We, we, we have the luxury that Mary didn't have. We have the luxury of fast forwarding to the end. We, we have the luxury right now of looking at all the events that we find in Scripture and that you will see in the Passion of Christ. You have those, the luxury of looking at those events and you see how those events are going to unfold. And, and again, it's, it's almost like we can watch this whole thing happen and it's like a play. And because of that, we know what it's going to turn out like. We know that the ending act is going to be like this. We know how the end is going to turn out. And and, and might I just say to you this morning, uh, again, I'm not here necessarily to to prophesy and say I'm right, but I think we're living in the last act. I think these are the end times, and I think if you deny that, you're going to make a mistake. But see, we have the luxury of seeing how things are going to play out. So this morning, I want to do something. I want you to shift your thinking this morning and do something that you're probably not used to doing. I want you to shift your thinking this morning, and I want you to actually treat your life on this earth as a play. Just treat it like a play. And I want you to imagine that in this play that you and I are in right now, there are actually two different stages where things are happening. There's the upper stage. And see, here's the thing. On that upper stage, that's where you have all of the activity of heaven happening. And then you have this other stage, and it's the lower stage. And that's the place where you and I find ourselves right now. That's where you have all of the activity of earth happening. So when you look back and you see Jesus hanging on the cross, with all of the events that were surrounding him, That crucifixion, that's the word I was looking for a while ago and I just couldn't grab it. But you have all of the events surrounding the crucifixion. When all of that is happening, you have to understand that Mary was only seeing the things, the activities that were happening on what I would call today, for our sake, the lower stage. As Mary watched her son, being crucified, you you have to understand, Mary had no idea what was happening on the upper stage. Now, let's just park it right there for a minute, because we're going to come back to Mary. And we're going to go somewhere else, because I actually think there's a better way to answer the question, where is God when I'm in a crisis? Where is God when I'm suffering? Where is God when I'm hurting? There's a better way for me to answer that question. What's happening when I find myself in crisis? Is God actually with me? Is God there? There's a better story that I think will explain the answer to that. And it's actually found in the Old Testament. And I say it's probably one of the most misunderstood stories in all of Scripture. We're talking about the story of a guy named Job. Look at Job chapter 1 and and remember. Now, you have to remember, you have to keep in context that we're looking at this from this idea of life being a stage, this lower stage and there's the upper stage. Look at Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now, again, remember the stages. We have these two things going. This is happening on the upper stage. The Lord said to Satan... Where, where, dude? Where are you been? Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, "I have come from roaming through the earth and going back and forth through it." Then the Lord said to Satan, "Well, have you considered my servant Job? Because there's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright." He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now look at what the devil says. Look at what Satan says. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Now remember, again, like I told you, this is all taking place not on the lower stage, but this is taking place on the upper stage. And I know it sounds strange, and I know it sounds confusing, but if you'll just track with me for just a few more minutes, I think this is all going to make sense to you. What we have happening on that upper stage that that, that nobody can see, we can't see what's happening there. Mary couldn't see what was happening there. Job couldn't see what was happening there. But what we have happening on that upper stage is like a cosmic bet. It's like a cosmic wager between God and Satan, in which God is kind of using Job and his family as pawns so that he can win a bet. That's, That's really not it. But that's kind of the way it seems. The key question of what's happening up there on that upper stage is the question you're going to see behind me. Does Job fear God for nothing? Because here's what Satan is actually saying to God. Job is devoted to you. Job worships you because it's in his best interest to do that. You scratch his back, he scratches yours. This is what Satan is saying to God. You think he loves you, God, but he loves you about like a child loves the ice cream truck. He loves you for what you can do for him. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. Now, the ultimate irony to this story is this. We think of the book of Job as a book where God is on trial. Did you hear me? We think of this book of Job as as a book where God is actually on trial. With all of the suffering, with all the hurt, with all the pain in the world, is there actually a good God? We think God is on trial. But actually, this is a story where humanity, the human race, is on trial. And when it comes to this trial, listen to me this morning, I want you to understand, Satan is the prosecuting attorney. We'll just call him Jack Lowry. Not really. But Satan is the prosecuting attorney. Now let me summarize a major chunk of the story. God allows Satan to inflict a lot of different crises in Job's life. He loses his riches. He loses his livestock. He loses his family. Job is in crisis. And Job is in crisis for some time. And of course, when he finds himself in crisis, Job had this overarching question that was always on his mind. And the question was something like this why are all these bad things happening? The question that Job had on his mind was, why are all these bad things happening to me? And again, if you look at the story and you read the entirety of the story, there were times that Job actually found himself in a place where he looked to the heavens and he screamed out to God and he asked that question. He asked that question, but every time he said, why are all these things happening to me? God said nothing. There was no answer. As a matter of fact, Job had some friends that tried to help him answer the question, why? And one of his well-meaning friends even said this in verses 14 and 15. He said, Job, if, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent... Then you will lift up your face without shame, and you'll stand firm and without fear. In other words, what Job's friend was saying, Job, it's the sin in your life. It's the sin that you're committing that's brought the suffering on you. It's all because of the sin that's a part of your life. Let me refer back to the story and give you a little detail because all three of Job's friends basically are going to say the same thing. All three of Job's friends in the story say it was sin that was bringing Job's house down on top of him. Now, here's what I want you to understand. You have to understand in the context of the culture that Job lived in. Because that was primarily the theology of the day. I call it the theology of suffering. And here's what I find interesting. That same theology still exists in the church today. And the idea of this theology is very simple. Goodness results in prosperity. Anybody picking up what I'm putting down? Have you heard this in the church? Goodness revolts, results in prosperity. Goodness, resu- You live a good life, you'll be prosperous. Live a good life, you'll be blessed. Wickedness results in suffering. And the question or, or, or the conversation between God and Job on the upper stage would have gone something like this. So Job, if, or between Job and his friends, uh, which would, would have actually been on the lower stage. So Job, if you'll just repent and you'll get right with God, then everything in your life is going to work out. And you'll get out of that crisis and you won't suffer. Just repent of the sin that's been a part of your life because it's the sin that's causing the suffering. And today we hear it in the church like this. God promises to heal you if you just have enough faith. God promises to heal you if you just have enough faith. Or, or the suffering that you're going through right now, the crisis that you're going through right now, is a wake-up call because of the sin in your life. And you need to pay attention to the sin, and you need to repent of the sin. And you do need to Repent. And you do need to pay attention. But there's so much more to it. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody here in the audience or anybody watching at home, anybody remember what actually happened on September the 11th? Do you remember where you were on September the 11th? I'll tell you where I was. I was in my suburban on a property that I owned on Toshiba Drive. And I heard it on the radio. And you know what I did because I'm such a spiritual person I drove straight to church i did drive straight to church but i was not a really good spiritual person at that time i drove the fairview baptist church over here i sat the whole day there watching the events of september 11th unfold right on national television again i don't know if you're paying attention to the news right now but according to what i'm seeing and hearing There are lots of questions being raised about September 11th, and people are wanting answers about September 11th, and they're asking politicians to give us the answers that we want, and the politicians are denying letting the information out. I don't know what that's all about, but I know what I saw happen. And in the days after that, you know what else happened? There were Christian leaders that started to rise up. And they started to tell us that they knew why September the 11th happened. And they said it was because of the sins of our country. Was it the sin of the terrorist? It was the sins of the people in this country. And that God was punishing us by having a terrorist crash an airplane into the World Trade Centers on that day. And they started naming the different sins that they said that God was punishing us for. And here's what I find to be particularly interesting is that the very sins that these particular Christians, and I'm not, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I'm just telling you, go back and look. You can read it. You can see it for yourself. But the particular sins that these particular Christian leaders got up and talked about, it was kind of interesting that they matched the political agenda that their ministry had at that time and what they had been talking about. You can read it, you can go back, and you can see it for yourself. But there's a problem with all of that. And I'm going to show you the problem based on Scripture. The problem is that God rejects that doctrine, Jesus Himself actually rejects that very theology. Because Jesus refuted that kind of theology, that kind of doctrine in Luke chapter 13. Because in Luke chapter 13, Jesus talks about an event, a current event, a tower in Jerusalem. It's called the Tower of Siloam. And because of the collapse, the falling of that tower, 18 people there who appeared to be innocent, those innocent people died. And the people of Jerusalem and the people of interest uh, of that area of Israel started to say, well, they must have been guilty of something. That's the reason why they died when the, the Tower of Siloam collapsed. Because God is, now listen to me, I want you to track with me. Because God is punishing them. That's why the Tower fell on them. And this is what Jesus actually says. In verse 4 of Luke chapter 13, look at what he says. Do you think that they were more guilty than all of the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. And I'm going to tell you this morning, I don't think that Mary didn't go through the same thing. Don't you know that Mary went through the same thing? Don't you know that Mary had friends that came to her? As her son is being executed on a cross, those friends came to her and said, Mary, what have you done? What have you done that's bringing this on yourself? Mary, didn't didn't you raise Jesus to be smarter than this? Did you tell Jesus that he was the Christ? Don't you know that she had friends that came to her and said, why don't you just repent to God and end this madness? Because something in your life has to be wrong. Something in your life has to be amiss for all of this to be happening to you. Let's go back to Job. Job knew that there was something for all of the things that were happening him, to him to be happening to him. He knew, he knew that there was something much deeper than just he having done something wrong. So Job continues to ask God, why? And Job says, you know, I just want to talk. Throughout the story, you're going to see, Job says, I just want to talk to God about this. I just want to talk to God about why do I find my life in a crisis time after time after time. And then in chapter 38 of Job, Job actually gets the chance to talk to God. And again, go back to the setting we have. God actually comes from the upper stage and he comes down to the lower stage. And as he does, what's interesting to me is God starts to ask Job this this list of questions. Job, where where were you when I laid down the foundations of the earth? Job, where were you when I marked off the dimensions of the earth? Job, do do you know the laws of heaven? Job, who is it that provides the food that the raven needs to eat? Now, here's what's interesting. It seems that when God appears on the lower stage and he comes from the upper stage to ask these questions of Job, he never gets around to answering the question of why all of these things are happening to Job. He could have done that because there is an explanation, there is a scene that happened on the upper stage. But God just comes to the lower stage, and he seems to ask Job a bunch of questions that Job doesn't have the capacity to answer. And again, to help you uh, understand the story, the question is, why would God do this? Is God just trying to show that he's smarter than Job? Is God tired of listening to Job whine? Let me tell you what it reminds me of. I I can be really open and honest here. Because my family attends the first service. It reminds me of my grandchildren who I love to death. But when my grandchildren are around, are around, they are at the age where they are all, or most of them, at least three out of four, they're all asking the question: why? Why is this? Why is that? Why is this? Why is that? And you know, most days I'm cool with it, but some days I have reached my peak with why. And interestingly enough, Friday night they came over to the house to go swimming. But I'm going to give you another instance. But again, uh, I have one that is particularly inquisitive. And that's Grace Ann. She, just, she, she came Friday and she was asking, well, why did you do this? And why did you do this? And why did you do that? And so th- I'm not talking about her when I give you this ac- explanation in just a moment. But, I mean, I was like, Grace Ann, you're setting up my sermon Sunday perfectly. You're doing it. But sometime back, there, there was an occasion where I was getting really frustrated because it was like, why, 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 why? And you know what? I, I, I kind of got frustrated and I wanted to still be nice. So I started to fire the questions back at them. Answer a question with a question. Wow! 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 I said, "Okay. Wh- why is the sky blue? Why is grass green? Why do you have air to breathe? What happened to the period behind Doctor and Doctor Pepper?" Ah, there you go. I bet you didn't know that one, did you? Did you know there's not a period behind the Doctor and Doctor Pepper? Why? And I felt like the parent of every two-year-old in America was going, "Yes!" Randy, you let them have it. Ask them another, ask them another, ask them another question. Just keep letting them have it. They'll have to work it out in therapy sometime later in their life, but just keep letting them have it. But here's my point. I don't think that's what God was doing. I don't think God is asking Job questions just because he wants to prove that he's smarter than Job. I mean, sure, I think God is trying to tell Job that that, you you have a limited point of view. You have a, a finite mind. But there's so much more. Many biblical scholars believe that if you look a little closer, you start to see a pattern in what happens in the story of Job. God's questions are starting to indicate something about the very person that God is. Look at Job chapter 38. This is what God says to Job. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? Who makes the path for the thunderstorm? Who waters a land? Look at what he says because this is really important. Who waters a land where no man lives, a desert where there's nobody in it? Again, context of this is important. Because Israel is a place where life depends on rainfall. Israel is a place, and I've been there four times, where nobody ever will waste a drop of water. So the question again is, why in the world would God water a land where nobody lives, where nobody can see it? Why would God water a land where nobody lives and nobody can see him watering the land? And I'll tell you the answer to that question. The answer is because God is a God who is generous, and he's generous for no reason at all. He's a God who's good for no reason at all. And he's a God who gives into your life and and into my life. For absolutely no reason at all and this whole section is God just creating and caring for and giving to and delighting in humans delighting in animals and things that will never do anything for him or anybody or, or they'll never do any good for anybody around them but God just gives and God is just good Because he's the God of the upper stage. And the God of the upper stage is a God who is endlessly good and uncontrollably generous and irrationally giving. And listen to me, he gives into your world and he gives into my world for absolutely no reason at all. And he gives because that's just the nature of who the God of the upper stage is. I don't think that if you look at the story of Job, that at any time, Job actually understood why the things were happening to him. I'm not even sure Mary ever totally understands why she was allowed to mother the Son of God and then have to watch him be crucified and go through that pain and agony but at the end of the day both job and mary got something that was better than the answer to the why question because they both discovered listen to me i want you to hear me they both discovered who God is they both discovered the kind of person that God is and this morning i want you to hear it from me to you that's better It's always better than understanding why. This whole story with Job is is what I would say found and summarized in chapter 42 of verse 5. This is Job speaking to God. Look at what Job says. My eyes, uh, my ears had heard of you. My ears had, had always heard about you. But now, because of the crisis in my life, my eyes have seen you. And you know what Job says? Listen, listen, listen. And that's enough, God. Now, because I've seen you, I can trust you. I can trust you with my children because I know they'll be better off in your hands. I can trust you with my pain. My ears had had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And now that I've seen you in the crises of my life, that's enough. So maybe the question that we started with isn't where is God in the crisis? Maybe the real question is this, where are you in the crisis? Maybe that's the real question. Because you see, you have to understand, again, we we looked at this as a play. Oh, Satan was dead wrong about Job. Dead wrong. You know what else Satan was dead wrong about? Satan is dead wrong about the human race. Satan was dead wrong about life. He was dead wrong about the universe, which he's going to find out here before long. And he's dead wrong about God. See, the central question of this story, and maybe even it's your story, is could a human being like Job and like Mary hold on to faith? Could they hold on to faith? And could they live their life and love and give when it doesn't seem to pay off at all? And one could. And one did. And even more than Job. Mary held on to her faith. Did you know that? Mary held on to her faith even though she couldn't understand the meaning behind the pain that she was experiencing there at the foot of the cross as she saw her son crucified. And you know what else happened? My friend held on to her faith. even when the odds seemed to be stacked against her. And she couldn't have the surgery and she couldn't have the treatment and it was prolonged. She held on to her faith even though she didn't understand what was going on. And now I'm wondering about you. Can you hold on to your faith when you don't understand what's going on? Because you know, when I see stories such as these in the Bible, when I see them in my my life with people who are in my life, and when I see them in our church, it's the honesty, the the integrity, the the courage, the tenacity, and the, the perseverance. You know what it does? It inspires me when I find myself in the land of a crisis. I think because of what some of you have gone through and what I've seen people in Scripture go through, it's just a little easier for me to just hang on and to keep going and and not give up. Because I know something that Job didn't know. I know something and you know something that even Mary was not clear about. See, I know that one day that that same magnificent God that has made his home on the upper stage, he would come to the lower stage to become one of us. And you know what he did? He took on all the suffering of this sorry, broken world. He took on every bit of Job's suffering and he took on every bit of Mary's suffering and he took on every bit of my suffering and he took on every bit of your suffering so that one day you and I can join him and we can live on the upper stage and praise God on the upper stage, the crisis, the suffering, the pain, it'll all be over with. And I know some of you in this room, suffering. I talked to some of you that that just came in. I know what your suffering is. I know that some of you that are watching are suffering. Why? I don't know. How long is that suffering going to last? I don't know. But does the way, listen to me this morning, listen to me because I'm speaking prophetically to somebody, does the way that you respond to that suffering matter? Let me tell you, it matters more than you will ever know. Does what you do, does how you live your life because of the suffering make any difference at all? More than you could possibly know. More than you could ever dream. Because you need to understand the eyes that find their home on that upper stage, the eyes of heaven are on your little life. And everything you do and every way that you respond to the suffering that you're going through, I just want you to hear me say, it has eternal significance. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? God, this morning we find hope in the God of the upper stage. And the God who came to the lower stage, who became one of us, who took on our suffering and our pain and our crises, who bore that for us on a cross. We're so thankful that today we get to look at the story, the play, the the movie, and we know how it's going to turn out. And right now, I think all of us in this room, all of those watching online, we're key characters in what God is doing to redeem the world to himself. So how we respond to the things that happen in life, let me tell you this morning, it matters more than you will ever know. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to him? Let me tell you this morning, it's just a prayer away. It's just you sitting right there and just believing in your heart that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And that his blood that David alluded to and talked about in that song as he was praying a while ago, it covers you from the very crown of your head to the very soles of your feet. And if you allow that blood to cover you and to forgive you, then one day, through faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, you will spend eternity in heaven on the upper stage where suffering and pain is over. very lips you can confess that my redeemer lives and it's through him that I find faith it's through him that I live my life until God calls me home God we're so thankful that Jesus sits at your right hand and that he intercedes for us as we ask this prayer this morning in Jesus name Amen